So, th so the last three slides are, are not in the book, but I wanted to include them because they're, they're sort of a useful segue into the, into the part that I'm going to read. And these come from the Countway Medical Library at Harvard, and Laura Larson, the photographer, and I went there because there's, there's this kind of amazing cache of photographs, photographic plates um, from the Salpetriere. And, and what these are, I mean, what distinguishes these um, is that unlike the photographs of, say, Augustine and Genevieve, um, which were quite staged and um, which were sort of circulated a great deal, these were um, kind of intake photographs. They were sort of bureaucratic. And they're much rawer, um, also because they're negatives. They have this spectral quality. Um, and out of this, out of going to the archive, I mean, I think you know one of the really profound effects of being able to handle these glass plates, which of course you know you're handling them with gloves, and I kept thinking, why are they letting me handle these? I'm certainly going to drop them. And um, but you're holding, I mean, because photography is made of light. You know, you're holding the light um, from from the moment when these women were being photographed. And out of this, I, I decided I wanted a collective we um, that would be included in the book. And um, a we that would, would speak to um, the, the women and girls who were part of the mass population. Because the more celebrated women and girls were pulled out of, of the mass population and given a room of their own and, and special perks, I mean, whatever, you know, in, in the larger context, not necessarily perks. But, but these were women who really died in anonymity, complete anonymity. And, um, and so that moment in the archive really led to this, this narrative choice I made. Um, so, so that will, I hope, be a, a good segue into um, the discrete story slash section I'm going to read an abridged part of. And um, this section is called uh, A Heartless Child. In the hospital, there were endless photographs of us, the photographs taken when we first arrived. Here is someone. We're different from the ones taken ever after. Here, what she became. The ever after photographs of the doctor's best girls making shapes that spell hysteria. In the photographs taken when we first arrived, a fist punches out of a frayed cuff, a thumb extended, wrinkles underlining the knuckle, a hand rests on a cloth-draped cone. A set of legs dangle from a table, one foot bent at a peculiar angle. A body in profile, its arm twisted behind its back. The spine's knobby staircase, upon which rests the hand of a doctor. Around his wrist, a watch, frozen in its ticking. A card accompanied each intake photograph. Voucher for the photograph of Mademoiselle such and such. Room Duchenne, Leguen, Cruvelier, etc. Diagnosis hysteria, paralysis of the face or eyes or feet, or atrophy of the tongue or hands or hip, or hysterical yawning or crying or laughing, contracture of the legs or foot or abdominal muscles, etc. 
Sometimes there was a card and the photograph was me. Mademoiselle Dubois, 12 August, 1890, age 20. Room Leguin, diagnosis hysteria, contracture of the hand. Information, present for six months, occurred following a violent emotion. My hair an electric frizz above my high-necked blouse. Beads for eyes, a flat mouth. A tag dangling from my wrist, my hand curled, stiff, propped up on the back of a chair. The past takes the shape of clothes too heavy for a clothesline. The wet weight of them pulls me back. Sometimes at Monsieur B's, for example, I didn't wring the clothes enough after washing them. Too heavy for the clotheslines strung across the large kitchen garden, they fell into the dirt, into the carrots and lettuce. I would have to start over. Mornings, I eyed the basin for washing vegetables, just big enough to drown myself. It would have been difficult. Still, I thought I could fall in, make it so people would think it was an accident. You cannot imagine the kind of sadness that enters the heart of a girl. 15, pretending to be 19, the age my parents gave the woman of the house so she would hire me. She wanted someone older, mature was the word she used, by which she meant a lot of things, none of them 15 and beautiful. In the garden was a large plot of red currants. We who worked in the house were given permission to eat as many as we liked once they were ripe. Somehow, they were never ripe. I began to feel about the currants the way I felt then about my body, curious, imaginative, eager, greedy. Everything made me want to touch myself. I wanted to rub the currants all over. I walked around filled with an aching anger. I decided to wake up early and eat as many of the ruby red bunches as I could. In the early morning, I sneaked out into the garden. At first, I gathered the sweet fruit in my apron. Soon, I was eating them straight off the bush. I returned to the kitchen sick with fruit, and there was Monsieur B. Help yourself, he said. He had been watching from the window. The kitchen shutters I thought I had shut, juice on my lips, and I had not shut them. You don't look 19, he said. He stepped closer. Did he want me to look 19 or 15? I knew right then I looked exactly the way he wanted me to look, that I wanted to make money to buy underwear enough so I could change it several times a week and still have money to send home, that to say nothing was to say, some, to say, nothing was to say something. I smiled a smile borrowed from who knows where, some catalog of smiles designed to ruin a man. I am the right age, I said. Heartless girl, he said. He stepped closer, licked the juice from my lips. My lie, my secrets, just as delicious, making of me a mystery. Some men love to jump right into that gap. I can keep going. Should I keep going? Oh, um, I think it's just the, I think the battery is dark. Okay, I can, I can talk, oh. I can just replace batteries. Do you wanna keep going? Sure. I, whoa. Oops, um, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, some men love to jump right into that gap. The currents gathered in my apron. I smashed them on my face, my neck, the juice dripped down. Here, I said, angry, aching, I offered him my throat. Every morning, I went into the garden early. Every morning, I left the kitchen shutters open. The red currents made me just sick enough. For a while, that sickness was what I wanted. There was so much juice for him to lick. I bought new underwear. I sent money home. I knew the way I knew what to say that first day in the kitchen, the way I knew what to do after, 
he would tire of me. Soon, his wife understood and hired a more mature girl. I left the country for the city. There was plenty of work there, I'd heard. Mounting the eyes and beaks of birds onto hats, stringing pearls and spangles on fancy braid work. There was the stitching to be done that held in place the whalebone stays of corsets. I found an apartment above a hardware store while all day long I listened to talk of nails and cookware. An attic apartment, its poorly joined planks, whistled my name when the wind blew through. I found work in a dressmaker's firm. I got up early to, to go to work and went to bed late. I got up early, went to bed late, woke up a girl who believed that sewing mended something. I got up early, went to bed late, got up early, went to bed late, woke up wondering, mended what? One day I woke up a woman who received a steamer trunk sent by her sister. The woman I had become had no more dresses, and so my sister sent her cast-offs. I needed them, but I wanted not a single one. I wanted the finely embroidered dresses I had made, the silk dresses spun from the Tavelles. I wanted a dress with fringe, a dress with fur trim. I wanted ankle boots. I wanted hats decorated with the eyes and beaks of birds. Why wouldn't sewing luxury items 11 hours a day give me a taste for finery? Leave off the question mark, its pleading curve. I am tired of begging. Some months before I had written, Dear Mother, may I keep the six francs that is our raise? I will send the same amount of my salary home. Don't worry. Not I rise at four, sew until eight, dress myself in order to arrive at the workshop by 8.30, stay until nine, come home for dinner, work until midnight. Not I skip the midday meal in order to save for one of the dresses I make. Folded in among the ratty dresses in the trunk was a note from my mother, meant not for me, but for my sister. My dear little girl, you're just like me, a generous nature, unlike your sister. She hangs on to her money. She is a heartless child. There have been moments I've wondered, did my jealous sister send the letter on purpose? Before I received the steamer trunk, I had no doubt there was love for me in this world. I've never thought myself extraordinary, but love, no matter the circumstances, it is. After the trunk, after the letter, all I could think was, in this steaming hell, I will remain unknown. Even my heartlessness will remain unknown, except, maybe, to those who no longer love me. I opened the trunk, and there I was, a heartless girl after all. Otherwise, years passed in which I did not throw myself out the window. Then a man I sometimes saw in the evening took me to see Carmen. Michaela sang to Don Jose his mother's message. Tell him his mother thinks of him night and day, that she misses him and that she hopes, that she forgives and that she waits. Art worked the way it should. It was a message from my own mother. I saved for a year in order to return to her. Did I think I would prove I was not heartless? I bought some fabric and stole a rest in order to make a dress not for me but for her, a dress made by a Parisian seamstress, me. Brilliant silk, fringed, fur trimmed, I would alter it to fit once I was there with her, back in my village. I would lay hands on her body, that body in whose parentheses I first existed, now a stranger's. I unreeled, not breaking, not breaking, not breaking, the skeins of silk. When I was done, I wrapped the dress in crinkling brown paper, held it in my lap on the long ride home, the sound of the Tavelles still in my head, louder than the train. It was evening when I arrived in Dauphine. The sun which flooded the valley of the Savenne during that day was a wave of light receding. The end of the workday, 
Men rubbed down the sweaty horses. Women set enormous pots of soup on long outdoor tables. All as I had left it 15 years before, I thought. This is what heartless daughters think, as if the world were a stage and they the heroines of their lives and everyone else's too. I wished I was the girl who sat beside me in the dress workshop, her sewing fervor verging on religion. She rose at four, sewed until eight, dressed herself in order to arrive at the workshop by 8.30. Went home for dinner, worked until midnight, and skipped the midday meal. Not in order to buy a beautiful dress, but to one day return to a place in the country like this one, where she might have a house with a garden and chicken and rabbits. She wanted to live in a village like mine, where the sun set behind the Cévennes and people called to one another as they left the vineyards for the day in a local dialect I couldn't understand from having been away so long. There was a man brushing his boots off, off outside the house I had decided was mine out of all the other look-alike houses. What is it, madame, he said. What startled me most was that I could understand him. The brown package with its secret dress was still clutched to my chest. I'm fine, thank you, I began to say. And then the man was my father. I'm your daughter, I said, something as simple and stupid as that. Still, he went on not recognizing me, asserting his confusion with an expression borrowed from a novel he would never read, in which a man does not recognize his daughter, a look that said the bond of blood relatedness is not a forever bond. It was a look that feared requests for money. Is mother home, I asked. Who is your mother? I have something for her, I said, and held up the package. I have something for her too, that impossible woman. He forgot what he had forgotten. She was alive, that would have been enough. I didn't need what happened next, I still don't. The door of the familiar house opened and she peered out, that woman who was my mother. She saw me and closed the door again. Once my mother, now and forever, a woman closing the door. Impossible, the man who was my father said under his breath. I thought about giving the dress to the girl sewing her way fervently back to the country, but she dreamed of chickens and rabbits, not a green silk dress. I left the package in a train station in a town outside of Paris where it might be discovered by someone as heartless as me. I rose at four, sewed until eight, dressed myself in order to arrive at the workshop by 8.30, stayed until nine at night, came home for dinner, worked until midnight. I did not skip the midday meal. I got up early, went to bed late, got up early, went to bed late. Time passed like this until I woke up one day and began to write a letter to that woman, now and forever closing the door. Dear mother, how are you? I am sewing with a religious fervor in order to one day return home, to have a house in the country with a garden and chicken and rabbits, to return to the village with the sun setting behind the Cévennes, to hear people calling to one another as they leave the vineyards for the day in the language I was born speaking. I am sowing my way into a peaceful garden with flowers. I tried again. Dear mother, how are you? I am fervently sowing my way back to you. It is exhausting how much of life is spent trying to say what you mean. Too many words, too few, all that feeble punctuation. Dear mother, the words kept disappearing until one day there were no more. Did the girl dream of sewing her way back to the countryside because the countryside she dreamed of was not dreaming of her? Did Don Jose's mother forgive him precisely because he would never return? Is the better part of life in the missing? On the train ride back from my village after I was free of the package, what I wanted most of all was to become imaginary so that I might be forgiven. In this, I have succeeded. 
In the room, Crevelier, a face in profile, the whorl of an ear, a curl escaped from a knot of hair. In the passage, Le Pique, a set of legs hang off a table, bloomers pushed up to reveal a shin, at the bottom of which a foot, toes curled. In some room somewhere, a body collapsing, held up by a nurse. She has turned to smile for the camera. In a room somewhere else, a body walking away, naked except for boots, dimples above her ass. In the room Leguin, a hand, stiff on a table, veins crisscrossing the back of it. Blood pumped through. It pumped through. It pumps through. Thank you.